You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. As is our custom, we've been walking through books of the Bible uh, normally, and so we are in the Gospel of Matthew in the 21st chapter. So again, if you, if you don't have a smart device or, or, or a phone or a Bible that'll get you to that, you'll see that paper Bible in the tray of the chair in front of you. Don't be afraid of the table of contents. We believe that when we open the Bible, something amazing happens. The Bible begins to open us. And so we've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew. That word gospel literally means good news. It's the first book in the New Testament. It's the first of the four other gospels. That is the eyewitness accounts of who Jesus is and what he did that we believe is good news. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, we're in the 21st chapter, and everything is about to slow down. Everything is about to, as I said before, if this were a movie, this is the slow-mo scene. This is where everything slows down and zooms in on what will be about one week of time. And so we've traveled over the last 20, uh, over the last 20 chapters over several different years, and for the last eight chapters, we are zoomed in on one week of Jesus' life. Now, most, most of the commentarians agree that, that all of the Gospels, the good news of Jesus, are really passion narratives. That is, the story and the, the zooming in of and the focusing on the death and resurrection of Jesus with extended introduction. And the other Gospels, you'll see the, what we're reading about today, the triumphal entry, also begins with a significant chunk of the text left. So, as, you, as we're going to read in just a moment, the Gospel of John, when he tells this, his account of this, he says that the branches we'll read about in just a moment that are being thrown onto the, onto the road in front of Jesus are palm branches. And it's how, uh, it's, uh, as a Christian calendar, the liturgical calendar would call Palm Sunday. So you didn't know it, but happy Palm Sunday. Now, the fact that we're not going to conclude the Gospel of Matthew until the resurrection in chapter 28 on Easter, Lord willing, if we can make that work, even points to exactly what I was describing, that what we would usually commemorate in the course of a week, the Gospel writers take chapters and chapters to describe. So we're zooming in on this powerful moment in the life of Jesus. If you want to, I'll give you kind of a rundown of the entirety of the book, and you'll see it here. If you skip to the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, after Jesus is raised from the dead, the very last verses of Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20, Jesus says to them in verse 18 that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he says. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you to the end of the age. So the end of this story, Jesus makes a bold claim that we're meant to consider, that he looks at all of heaven, all of earth, and says, I have authority over all of it. Therefore now, as a disciple, make disciples. Now up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, he's been telling us what that means. You might ask yourself, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? I'm glad you asked. If you're in this room and maybe you're not a Christian, you wouldn't call yourself a believer. You're not sure about this whole Christianity thing. You're, you're, in, a great particular, uh, you're in a great particular section of the Gospel of Matthew. In chapter 18, they begin this passage, this section, by asking Jesus, hey Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And for the last several chapters, Jesus has been doing what he normally does, makes disciples, discipling his disciples and teaching him about who is great and who is not great? What is greatness in Jesus' kingdom, they want to know? He says greatness is like a child. 
helpless, needy person who sees themselves as only, as only by the grace of God what they are. He says the great, the great in the kingdom are those who serve, who sacrifice for themselves. Those who are not great, those who are rich, powerful, and unable to let go of those things. Those who are not great are those who use their authority, position, and power to lord it over others. Those who are great are those who cry out to Jesus for mercy. So when we think about the greatness of Jesus on display in a paradox in chapter 21, let's read the first 17 verses as we consider the greatness of Jesus. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to your daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of all those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. We believe this is God's word, and my prayer for us this morning is it's more than just a recitation or ink on the page, but that God would speak to us. I want to begin our time considering a question. Who is the person that you love it when they tell you what to do? Who is the person or persons in your life that you really do love it when they tell you what to do? Who are the persons that when they correct you, you enjoy it? Who are the people that you look to for help gladly. Who, who are those people that you can name in your life that you love it when they help you, correct you, and tell you what to do? Now, my commendation, my goal in the time that we have together is that you would consider putting Jesus at the top of that list. 
that you would consider that what Jesus says to you is better than what anyone else can. However, that could be easy for us to spiritualize, to think about abstractly. We could think about that without using any concrete or real terms. But the evidence that we would see Jesus for who He is here can be visible in your answer to that question. Who are the people in your life that you genuinely love it when they correct you, when they tell you what to do? Because you know that they love you. You know that they're able to see something in you that you can't. You know that what they say to you is for your good and for your benefit. Who are those people? And if you can't think of many, then step one, I want to commend to you Jesus. And then see the concrete evidence of living a life in light of Jesus that you begin to see your life as a servant. I think there's three different things I want to draw our attention to. I'm going to use the framework of verse 5 to do that. You'll notice verse 5 is a, is a prophetic word from Isaiah saying as a prediction exactly what it is that is going to happen. Exactly, and it's even found in Zechariah as well. It's this prophetic vision of what is taking place. Jesus setting the stage for his entry into Jerusalem all the people from outside of Jerusalem gather, and then the people in Jerusalem gather together. And Matthew makes sure we see the reason that happened was to fulfill a promise. This is not an accident. This is something that's happening on purpose. And he starts to quote Zechariah. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, full of a beast of burden. I think there's three things there that will guide our understanding of these two passages. First, Jesus is king. Jesus is the king. Behold your king. Jesus enters as a king and all the things that come with that picture. And what you find is him coming as king comes as a crisis. It comes as a conflict. It comes as a clash. Because that's what happens when a king comes that's what happens when a king comes and begins to assert sovereignty. The clash and conflict inevitably ensues with the person who thinks they're king. And so a confrontation is set up here. You can see this as you, as you most powerfully as you look at the language that's used to describe Jesus by the children in the second half of that passage when he's in the temple, but by the others who were crying out. They call him, you see this, son of David. Son of David. Now that is a heavy, weighty term. There's so much going on there. If you want to, you can, you can flip back, but you could also just kind of make a, make a note of this. But if you go back to the very first verse in the entirety of the book of Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, in introducing us to us, he gives us the genealogy of Jesus. And he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, now here's that word or that phrase, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's a powerful term because if you were to peruse the Old Testament, you would come to find out that in the history of these people, set aside by God's promise to demonstrate something that the whole world would be blessed through, at the height of this, this picture of God's blessing to his people in a promised land, there was a king by the name of David. And he's the greatest, most amazing king that's ever lived. Now, the Bible tells us that he is a man after God's heart. That is, his, his very heart reflected something of the heart of God. But I'll warn you, as you read the story of David, you'll find it to be very disappointing. The story of David is, isn't a happy ending. He's a fairly immoral person. And I would say that shouldn't disappoint you insofar as it's like an appetizer. The appetizer is never meant to fill you completely. It's meant to whet your appetite for that which is to come. 
And this David was that king. And the prophetic language around him following his reign and rule was that there was going to be one day an ultimate, a great king, a final king, the one king to rule all kings, the king of kings. And this king would come and he would sit, this king would sit on David's throne. He would be the fulfillment of God's perfect promise to his people. And Matthew at the very beginning says, this is the one. This is that ultimate king. This is that final king. You can skip to Matthew chapter 9. And there's a parallel story that should sound very similar to what we read last week. In chapter 9, Jesus passed on from there. Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us. And how do they call him? Son of David. You hear? King, ultimate king, final king of kings. Have mercy on us. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. Now listen to this. And Jesus sternly warned them. I don't know how you picture that. He sternly warned them. See that no one knows about it. Next verse. But they went away and spread his fame through all the district. And so they call out, King of kings, ultimate and final king. And Jesus, as we see what we call the messianic secret in the other gospels, tells them, don't tell anyone. Now again, to be fair, he sternly warned them and they were like, yeah, totally, we will not tell anyone. Holy smokes, did you get, you know, like, like, I'm, I mean, because naturally people are like, weren't you blind the whole of your life? What happened? He's like, okay. They weren't like, well, I was sternly warned not to explain that to you, right? So get the picture here. These, these blind men call out to God, son of, or they call out, to, call out to, to Jesus as the messenger of God to take on the messianic kingship, king of, king of kings, ultimate king, heal us. And he says, don't tell anyone what's happened. And the reason is that you can see it in the text today is that a clash, a conflict would ensue. The minute he asserted that he is king, something else would happen entirely that would set the stage for the rest of this entirety or the rest of this gospel. And so he says, don't tell them because after all those people would have told, they would have told, they would have told the world, hey, Jesus is this healer. He's this teacher. He's this famous, amazing person. And Jesus makes very clear that is not what he came to do only. So don't tell anyone. Keep that a secret. Skip forward to Matthew chapter 12 when he is performing these amazing miracles and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? They're wondering, is this it? Is this the king? Is this the one who's going to come and restore what once belonged to us in our king David? Is this the one? Is this the king of David? Now, skip all the way forward to our reading from last week. You'll see it, it parallels Matthew chapter 12 pretty closely. So if, if you skip back, as, as you have your Bible open, look back at Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 29. And the story will sound very similar, except for one part. As he went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. Sitting by the roadside and when they heard Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Sounds familiar, right? Sounds like this might be the exact same story from Matthew chapter 12. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out, cried out all the more. Because when, when you're looking for healing, you don't listen to crowds or Jesus, I guess, right? Lord, have mercy on a son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? Notice the turn. Notice what has shifted. Up to this point, when people would wonder about or think that he is the son of David, 
he deflected. He said, don't tell anyone what you've seen. Don't, don't tell anyone. Keep it a secret. And something amazing happens here. They said, O king, ultimate and final king, great and mighty divine king, almighty, ultimate, superior and sovereign king. And Jesus goes, yes. Go on. You get it? Something shifts here. Something is changing. Jesus is coming as king. He is the king. Now, make no mistake about it. This is what Christians believe to be true, that Jesus is sovereign, that he is Lord, that he has authority over all things, that he, with the power to heal, the the power to restore, the power to teach and give insights to eternal wisdom is the king. He is the great messianic king, the ultimate, the final king. But notice what that brings. It brings confrontation. It brings a showdown. It brings a crisis. Because from this point on, you'll see what happens when he outs himself as king and responds, oh yes? Go on. He says, I will either be king or I will be killed. Because after all, that's what kind of crisis ensues when someone asserts their sovereignty and authority over someone else. That's what happens. Essentially, to come public as I am the king, I'm the king that is here for you, you will either have to crown me or kill me. You've heard me say this before, that's why we say this regularly, that you can be offended by, you can be appalled by, you can hate and try to kill and silence Jesus, or you can worship him as Lord. You can't pick a spot in the middle. Jesus can't be your counselor. He can't be your helper. He can't just be someone to fix your life. He is for us the very source of life. And he is Lord or he is nothing at all. Now, now that first comes to us as a shock. That's the right and natural response. It's disorienting. Because after all, maybe you're like anyone else, like good Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. Who are you to tell me what to do? And the rest of the gospel is an explanation of that. But notice the crisis, the showdown that comes when Jesus asserts himself as king. And notice who would be offended. Because after all, if someone walked into the room and said they were king, the only person who would really be offended is someone who thought they were king, or maybe someone who was the king. And Jesus comes and says something to you and to me. It will be profoundly offensive if we allow it, if God is gracious enough to offend us with it. He comes to you and to me and says, I am king over your life. Now, now let that sink in just a little bit because most of us come into this room, whether we implicitly or explicitly would ever say it, believing we are Lord over our lives. We are the ones who get to say who we are. We are the ones who get to say what we're doing. We're the ones who have control and lordship over our life. We're the ones who have power and authority over our lives. And notice the first thing that we experience when we see the real Jesus, the real Jesus, not some made-up Jesus in our own image, the real Jesus, the first thing we experience is an offense. Because he comes and claims the throne over all things, including your life and mine. And that's really great unless you think you're the king of your life. He's forcing a crisis, either crown me or kill me. One commentarian puts it this way, if we take the gospel writers seriously, then we must finally ask the question that is thrust so flagrantly toward us. Speaking of Matthew, 
Is Matthew bringing us a life-transforming truth? Or is he just one gifted lunatic with a tale of another gifted lunatic even wilder than he is? He says the gospel is often handled and dimmed in our understanding. 2,000 years of pious handling, he says, has dimmed our grasp of this story to where it's common or maybe even our own consciousness to think, oh yeah, I can have Jesus and other things. I can love and follow Jesus and yet remain Savior and Lord of my own life, the hero of my own story. So recognize the first thing that happens. Jesus is king, and that starts as an offense to us. You will either receive him and worship him, or you will want to silence and kill him, which is exactly what happens for the next eight chapters. Revelation 3 says it this way. The gospel, or excuse me, the apostle John gets a vision of things as he encourages a church of Laodicea who is doing some of these faithful things, but his word to them is, so because you are lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of mouth, says Jesus to the church of Laodicea and to us. Because after all, the only things that are good room temperature are things with a lot of preservatives in your cupboard, right? Cheez-Its, that's it, that's it. After that, right, it needs to be hot or it needs to be cold. Even in some cases for your own safety, right? For, to, to fight bacteria. And he's saying, you are neither and thus you have no part in me. So see the crisis. See the confrontation, the clash the conflict that happens. But see also, as he will be king or be nothing, notice he doesn't say, I want parts of you. I'm here to make your life a little better. He comes to give you new life and to give himself as the way to be life. He wants all of you, not just parts of you. And you can see this in the way that he's planning and orchestrating everything. He's in control of it all. Look, look at the first few verses. They're all devoted to outlining this preparation for his announcement entrance, right? He sends the, the disciples ahead. Hey, go, go, go ahead. And, and, and you, you kind of see this conflict in, in the language that, that, uh, that, that Matthew uses. Verse 3, if anyone says anything to you, like, go get, this, go get this donkey, this colt, have him prepared for me. I'm going to ride in on it. And if anyone says anything, I love that. It's like, say something, right? Say something. If anyone says anything, he says, tell them, the Lord needs it, right? You can hear that sovereign language, right? Like, hey, I need this. Like, no, 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 the Lord needs it. This is for the Lord. And just as he planned, just as he set out, just as he orchestrated, this absolutely happened. And it was to fulfill, he tells us, a prophetic promise. The disciples did it, and it happened exactly as he predicted. Notice, Jesus is in control of all these things. All the things he is going to symbolically communicate and accomplish are visible and ready. After all, this was happening in Bethany and Bethpage, this area. These people would have known Jesus. This is where he raised Lazarus from the dead. They would have been familiar with Jesus. He's not sneaking into Jerusalem this time. Instead, he is coming and orchestrating an announcement. Tell those people the Lord have needs, has need of it. The Lord is going to use it. You go and tell those people who's going to be riding on this colt. He is orchestrating his entrance. You see also the kingship of Jesus in the next passage. Did you see it as he walks into the temple? He walks into the temple and, and then quotes prophetic language in the first person. My house, right? Like to walk into any place, 
and declare that is, is abrupt, abrasive, it's conflict. Because after all, the only person, right, he flips tables, the only person who has permission and authority to rearrange the furniture is the one who owns the house, right? Don't try this at home, or do, to prove a point, I don't know. But you, you get this picture that Jesus walks into the temple, the place where people would meet God, and declares triumphantly, this is my house, this is what's intended for my house, and you have what? Made it into something else. They had taken commerce and used it as a replacement for communion, meeting with the presence of the Lord. Now that's, that's, that's not something I want you to skip over. As he comes in to confront those people, this is pretty helpful for us. Right? I, I, think of, I think of Winston Churchill like speaking to, to Parliament, saying like, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the other forms of government. Well, my patriotism is probably connected to like capitalism. Capitalism is the best ism, or the worst ism, except for all the other isms. I say that because every ism comes with its own idol, its own sin that, that, can, that, can, that can run wild. And you know, the idol, the sin that can run wild in capitalism is greed. Greed can destroy. And that way of living that you and I have likely been steeped in can seep into our souls to where we really think that our identity, our meaning, our purpose is a transaction of goods and services. And he walks into this and flips the table to demonstrate, look, this is not what God is like. And this is helpful for us because you might walk into this room, even this morning, thinking, I'm here, I showed up, I did my part, right? And now please give me all the religious goods and services. That might be, you might not have said that out loud, but you'll know it when you, don't, when you don't feel like you've been given the religious goods and services that you deserve, you get it. And just hear the confrontational king who flips the table and said, that's not what God is like. God is not to be bartered with. You come here not to make a deal. You come to meet with God. And Jesus comes as king, flips the tables, rearranges the furniture, and says, in my house, in my house, there is what, do you hear, do you hear? This is for prayer. This is for meeting with, speaking with. I mean, just imagine the mystery, right? Being heard by God. And this can be a helpful confrontation even for us this morning. If you think you've kind of come in this morning hoping to get like religious goods and services, I'll just beat you to it. You're going to be incredibly disappointed. But, if you've come here anticipating that you might meet Jesus himself, now there's something else entirely. Jesus is king. And you see it in the way he confronts and the way he orchestrates his announcement. And the way he walks into the temple, a place where you would suspect God alone has authority and asserts authority there. Jesus is not only the king, if you look back at verse 5, behold your king, and he says, behold your king is coming to you. Jesus is not only the king, Jesus is the coming king. If this were Palm Sunday, most of the lectionaries or most of Christian history has paired scripture reading of Palm Sunday with scripture reading of Christ's second coming. That is that we're meant to see the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem to be betrayed, handed over, crucified, and resurrected as a lens through which we see the lordship of Jesus forever. That is, we see what Jesus came to do here as a picture of ultimately what Jesus will do in the future. Not only did Jesus come to do something, but he will come again to do something else. He is the coming king. He's the one who is on the way. Think of the language here as he's the one we have all been waiting for. 
He's the one we've all been hoping for. Here's your homework. Go watch The Lion King, right? Uh, this is one of the best things I could tell you. This afternoon, watch The Lion King. Jesus is Moses. Or, no, Jesus, Simba is Moses. Simba is Jesus. Just sit around this afternoon watching Lion King thinking about that. Don't worry about the rest of them. I don't know what they are. That's not helpful. Just, that's what makes the story so powerful. The king is here. And you, if you watch that story through the lens, you walk away going like, I can't wait for the king to come and do that, right? Jesus is the coming king. He's the one who's on the way. Notice the palm trees as you see here. The palm trees for the Greeks and this culture would have been a symbol of victory. Here's a fun one for you. Uh, Nike uh, or Nike, uh, the Greek goddess of victory. That's right, where those, where those swooshes with style. Um, the symbol of Nike or Nike, the Greek goddess of victory is what? The palm branch. You know, wave that around with your shoes, right? And so for them to, to break off these branches, it's, 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 the, it's, the, it's the triumphal entry of a victorious and conquering king. This is how you would treat someone who has slain the enemy and is now parading the victory over the public. He is the coming king. This symbolizes the palm trees, all that God will ultimately do and restore. Jesus comes in his first, come, in his first coming to put everything right with us and God to destroy sin, death, and hell and its power, and then he's going to come again, and he's going to wipe away every single scar or remnant that they ever existed. He came first to set us right with the Father by erasing the effects of sin, but one day he's going to come back, and he's going to erase even the remnants or traces of it. He's going to wipe away every tear. You get the idea? Make everything, all things new. And we're meant to see through this coming, this coming king to the coming king in the future. Again, the Apostle John gives us a vision of this in Revelation chapter 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. This is not Wyatt Earp, by the way. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Now, now you get a picture, right? For those of us who have read the Gospel of John, John introduces us to Jesus with the very first verse saying, in the beginning was what? The Word. And the Word was God and with God, the Word became flesh. He's saying Jesus is that one wearing a, clothed, wearing, wearing a robe dipped in blood of his enemies. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horse. From his mouth comes a sharp word, or, or a sharp sword. I, I, I beat the, the, the sword as a word. You get the idea. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a the rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Jesus is the coming King. He is not to be trifled with. He comes in confrontation and in power. He orchestrates his introduction. This is a picture, a very dim picture in his entrance into Jerusalem of what he will ultimately do. Now this I can say to you, he came to put us right with God and so you can trust him to make everything else right. You can trust that he will put everything right one day because right now, because of Christ and placing our faith in him, we are now righteous, justified before God. And the palm branches, Psalm 96 says, the trees will sing. Isaiah 55 says the trees one day will clap their hands. 
see the complete wholeness in all things that the King who is coming is going to bring. But, I don't know if you read that, there's a problem. You might think, well, that's great. He's coming to come, he's coming, come to destroy all the enemies of God. He's going to come and He's going to destroy all evil. He's going to wipe out the evil ones. And if you're thinking about all the evil people you know in your life, you're excited, right? You're like, oh, this is going to be great. He's going to make a... Their blood is going to be soaking His clothes. I mean, that's graphic, right? You're like, and, 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 and here we have something that unfortunately is a problem because we can go like... Oh, that's great. He's going to come and eradicate evil. He's going to come and wipe out all the evildoers. And that might be good news for some of you, but what about evildoers like me? That's not good news at all. If he comes as a conquering and confrontational king that is to reign and rule over all his enemies, that's not good news. Those of us who have spent time rebelling against God, imposing our own will on God, thinking we are God, are on the long list of people that we will, who will ultimately experience His wrath. But here's the third thing that verse 5 tells us to do. Let's go back to it. Behold, your King, Jesus is King. Your King is coming. Jesus is coming. But look at the third thing. He's coming humble, mounted on a donkey. Jesus is the King. Jesus is the coming King. But here is the paradox. And in so in so much as it's a paradox, is good news for us. Jesus is the humble king. He's the humble king. Now you can see his humility in a few particular things. After all, it's so good that Jesus is going to come and eradicate evil. But the biggest problem, and for us, the gospel, is that if he comes back to eradicate evil, what's he going to do with me? If he's going to come and wipe out all of the evil people in the world, what's he going to do with us? Kill all the evil people? Great, but that's not great for me. Destroy evil? That's awful. But hear the powerful paradox. I heard a, uh, an old preacher said this when I was very young. I don't remember when, when or how, but I remember this. When I say paradox, this is what I mean. He said a paradox is when the truth stands on its head to get your attention. There's something upside down here that's meant to grab your attention. He comes as a king, but he comes humble, mounted on a donkey. He may come back to eradicate evil, but something amazing is happening. He's coming to destroy evil by humbly giving himself for the evil. He comes to destroy wickedness by standing in the place of the wicked. And that, friend, is good news. Paradoxically, mysteriously, like Batman, right? The triumphal entry is the picture of the king we need, but the king we did not want. He comes and does something that's paradoxically good for us. He comes humble. He comes on a colt. The donkey, John, Genesis 49, says that one day the scepter shall not depart from Judah. The ruler's staff will not depart from between his feet until the tribe and the tribute comes to him. And to him shall be all the obedience of the people, binding his foal to the vine, his donkey colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Now, for those of us who are Christian who see through the lens of communion, the body and blood shed for us, that has powerful imagery. However, but just notice what he says, that one day God's going to restore something. It's going to restore these people. And there's going to be this humble picture of a colt tied to a vine. There's going to be a tied up colt 
And it says the, the, the wine will be something they wash their garments in. Uh, that imagery is just like, imagine, imagine for them and for us, a liquid you would never want to go to waste because it's expensive. He says, I'm going to come and restore them in such a way that the things you would preserve, like wine, are going to be disposable. You're going to wash your dishes, right? You're going to wash your clothes in wine. And then, of course, Zechariah 9, the one that's quoted, Behold, the king will come righteous, having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See the clash and the crisis of this moment, but see also the paradox, the oddity, the enigma. See the mystery. Think of it this way. Sin, as we read across the Bible, is the story of putting ourselves in the place of God. That's sin. From the story of our very first uh, parents, Adam and Eve, saying God is not enough, his presence is not enough, we think we know better, we're going to do what we want to do. Putting our place, or putting ourselves in the place that belongs to God. Now, maybe sin is a weird and seems archaic to think about, but you know this is true as you look around. When people, anytime a person murders, right, things like, I have the divine power to give life or take it away. Think, think of that, that's the, the grotesqueness is of to think that a person could have that authority or power. Someone who's lowly puts themselves in the place of God. And sin, as we understand it, is this picture of what happens when we put ourselves in the place of God. So, hear the reversal and the powerful picture we see of the humble king. That means that the reversal of sin and its effects is God taking the place of the servant. If sin is the servant putting themselves in the place of the master, if sin is a lowly person putting themselves in the throne of the king, see the paradox and the enigma, the beautiful mystery of the gospel in Jesus, the coming king, coming humble, mounted on a donkey, who has come to reverse sin and its effects by being the king who takes the place of a servant, by being the master who willingly takes the place of the slave. He comes also as a parody. He comes as a satire of human power. Uh, uh, a New Testament ethicist puts it this way, and I, I'm, I'm not mature enough to say this, so I'll, I'll just kind of like allude to it. Uh, and if you're mature enough to understand it, you can. I'm not even going to say it out loud. But I encourage you this afternoon, read this passage in the King James Bible. This is a, a, a 15th to 16th century translation. Um, and, and I encourage you, read this passage in the King James Bible. And when you read through it, there is a King James, the King James uses a different word to translate the word donkey. You with me? It's worth, your, it's worth your time, and unless you're not mature enough to do this, in which case you shouldn't. Excuse me, myself included. I'm not even going to say it out loud. Uh, because as the King James translates the word for donkey, there's something on display here. That word I'm not even going to use. You know why? Because at this point, it's crass. It's inappropriate. You shouldn't use that kind of language in a space like this. That isn't a word we would use. It's inappropriate. And now you see the paradox. The mighty king, the king who is coming, came almost as a cartoon, as a satire for human power, as if to say, this is not what you would normally expect. This is something that is turning things upside down. If sin is the servant taking the place of the master, then reconciliation might include turning things upside down by the master taking the place of a servant. So that we would see that Jesus has come to serve us and save us as a king, but not like a king you've ever seen. 
He comes in a way that the world will see as crass and vile. That's not how the world works, after all. This can be helpful for you. In the picture of the king lowering himself, we see something, that we are saved through weakness, not through strength. We're saved through weakness, not through strength. In other words, we're saved by grace and not by our own effort. This can be very powerful for you. After all, every world religion is built on the premise that we can be saved through effort and strength. And that will leave you in a couple of different places. Even most of human cultures are built upon this principle that we are saved or find merit or value through our strength or effort. And some of you might have come in this room thinking that. And you'll, be, and you'll find yourself in one of two places if that's the case. One, you'll be in despair. You'll be here in this morning because you failed. You stunk. Well, here's what I actually know. If you, live in this, if you live in this world, you won't show up to places like this because you'll feel just the reproach that you're failing. You'll disappear. I've been there. I'm not, I know some of you, maybe you're, you're, you're thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to do better this time. No, you're not. That's the picture of salvation through strength. And it will leave you in despair because you fail, you're weak, you haven't measured up to your own standard, or it will leave you in a position of self-righteousness where you right now will look down your nose at everyone else. Man, I'm really glad, I'm really glad I'm nailing it. Right? Think of the Pharisee. I thank God I'm not like these losers. You get the idea? This is, what the, this, is, this is the survival of the fittest. This is the belief that the higher achievers, the higher competency, those people ultimately are the ones who succeed. And Jesus comes on the foal of a donkey to turn that on its head. We are saved not through strength, but through weakness. That is to say, we are saved through grace, not by our own effort. Some of you in this room are just really gifted in the area of self-discipline and self-restraint. Right? You're just really good at living an orderly life. But what about the rest of us? Some of you in this room are really bright, really intelligent, really insightful. You're really wise. You're able to discern the meaning of things. You're able to see the substance and significance of things. That's great for you. But what about the rest of us? Some of you in this room have it all together. Or at least you make it look like you do right now. You have it all together. You're really successful. Everything you set out to accomplish, you do. You succeed, and that must be great for you. But what about the rest of us? Do you get it? Salvation through strength is a story of every world religion that says, hey, Matt, hey, servant putting yourself in the place of God, stop that, right? Hey, those bad things you're doing, please quit that. Stop putting yourself in the place of the master. Stop putting yourself in the place of God. Can, I get you, can you do better? Can you try a little harder? That's salvation through strength and salvation through effort. Look at the coming king who comes humble, who turns that on its head. Salvation through strength is a story of every world religion, and it's the baseline expectation for almost every human culture. And that's great as long as you're one of those people who can conform to it. But what about the rest of us? And that's why the good news of the king the coming king, who comes not in tyranny, but in humility, in weakness, is so glorious. What about the rest of us? Friend, look at the king. Christianity is not for the strong, it's for the weak. If it's for the strong, that's great for some of you, but what about the rest of us? The good news for the rest of us is that Christianity is about the weak. Christ came for the humble and for the weak those who would look to him for hope 
by means of being humble and being weak so that we can say on a regular basis, anyone can get in on this. All the qualifications are, are being weak, inept, feeling like a failure, not measuring up. And like, does anyone have that on their resume? Like, I'm weak. I'm, and I get to say, that's great. We're hiring that position. We have a position just for that. Welcome. Come in. Christ has come for the humble and for the weak. And that's so glorious that we write and sing songs about it. We write and sing songs about how glorious it is. Look, there will always be movements of power, influence. There'll be movements of cultural power, political power, philosophical power, ideological power. They'll always be sweeping through, rising and falling. And it will always be the case that those things, every single movement is about strength over weakness, gaining momentum, influence, and strength over the weak, not Jesus. The greatest thing that's ever happened in history, think about this, is that the most powerful king who was coming came humble. And when you know that you're saved by the humble servant, you begin to live as a humble servant. Right, when you try to live as a king, you live a life of insecurity. You're always being threatened. Your influence is always under attack. And you know this, if, if, if you're living a life in the place of the king, some of you are living that, you can't take criticism. Remember that question I began with? Who's a person that you love it when they tell you what to do? If you can't name very many people, then friend, you know above all how terrified you are of that. You know how, like, you want to live as the king and the master, but you know how terrifying it is. You would never want to let anyone in to tell you something you might be doing wrong because down deep you wish you and think you are king. But here's the thing. When you know that you're saved by the humble servant, you begin to receive life as a humble servant. And no matter what you face, I mean, I'm, I'm not kidding, no matter what you face, whatever happens, you'll know that your master is in it. No matter what you face, no matter what criticism, no matter what situation, no matter what difficulty, you will see it as a humble servant and think to yourself, I don't know what this is, I don't know why it's happening, but I know there was a master and king and I know he is humble and cares for me. And you can, be, you can begin to receive every hardship, every difficulty, every single thing you can receive because you're his servant. And that comes from seeing the power of the humble servant. This is the paradox of Palm Sunday. The sovereignty of God through servanthood. The strength and power of God in weakness. Even comical, offensive weakness. The king that has come to stoop. Who has condescended to the level of the weak. If you miss out on this strength, you will despair in your own. This is the powerful picture that Jesus overturns then. Uh, in the next little bit of humility is in that second passage, and I'll wrap up on that. Jesus, Jesus overturns the tables as a picture of how Jesus overturns false and corrupt ways of being made right with God to show how he is the way. Think of it this way. We'll kind of go at them in reverse. One of the ways you see him being the humble king is notice what he does the minute he overturns Right, the minute he overturns the furniture, the minute he overturns the tables, verse 14, it says that the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. Right? He didn't overturn the tables to establish his own tyranny. 
He overturned the tables to make room for the weak to get to him. What a beautiful picture. Now see the confrontations. Jesus will come to you and I and our crooked ways of relating to him. And even some of you might feel this. You're like, man, I, this, I thought this was making me feel good. I thought I, had, right, I, thought this, I, I thought I had this nailed. And maybe you wouldn't think of that as a religious way of ma- being made right. But this serves as a picture of that. I thought everything in my life was good. And it feels like it's being turned upside down. And you're asking Jesus if he would, if, like, if he would fix it. And I want you to see Jesus won't fix it. He'll flip it so that he'll give you something better himself. And I know it feels discombobulating when you... Things that you had hoped in and trusted in are torn from out from underneath you. But I promise you, the humble king gives us himself, and it's better. Look, the presence of God is always better than some sort of exchange, some sort of commercial transaction with God. But here's the second thing you see that he does as a humble king in that passage. It may not look like it, but in verse 12, it says that he flipped over the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So people would travel great distance. And you can't bring animals to sacrifice over great distance, not easily anyway. And so people would come and and they would exchange their money and they would buy animals that they could sacrifice to be made right with to experience the atoning and sacrificial grace of God. But people had begun to take advantage of those people, right? It's, I mean, you know this, whenever you travel, it's like the people who run the stores in airports, right? Like, I need, I need, you know, I need, I need some antacid or like some, you know, like I'm, 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 I get airsick. I need some Dramamine. And they're like, that's great. That'll be $9,000. You get the idea? Like, because you're, you're traveling. I mean, who's going who's gonna to stop them? What are you going to do? Like, I'm going to go home. You know what I'm saying? You're stuck. And this is what people were doing. They were taking advantage of people who were simply coming to know and experience the presence of God through atoning sacrifice. But Jesus does something. He flips the table and, and, and rids, the whole, he rids the temple of that. And they had to have been asking a question. They had to have been asking a question you and I would ask that we see the humble king answer. You can see them as he kind of flips over their means of finding a sacrificial animal to experience the atoning presence of God. You can see them saying, well, okay, then how are we going to be made right with God? If you've removed these other sacrifices that we were going going to buy or sell, how is it that we're going to be made right with God? And you can hear Jesus going, yes, go on. When the Gospel of John tells the same story, it tells it right next to the story of him turning the water to wine in, at Bethany, same place. And, and Jesus does something same way. He turns water to wine, but he gets a massive amount of water from, if you remember, from the jugs of purification water. So these jugs of water set aside for religious and spiritual purification, he turns them into wine. And you can hear the religious leaders asking the same question. You've you've taken our means of purification, Jesus. How are we going to be made pure before God now? And you can hear Jesus going, yes, go on. You get it? He overturns the table to take what was once there and replace it with himself. He is the good and coming king because he's the humble king. He comes as a replacement. He comes as a sacrifice. He comes lowly, meek, and humble. Notice just flippantly, side note here. Notice the worthlessness of human accolades and and then just notice the worthlessness of human celebrity in this story. In a week's time, these people go from all of Jerusalem yelling that he's amazing. Hosanna. Hosanna isn't hooray. Hosanna is save us. And they're crying out to this, this son of David. And within a week's time, many of these people will be yelling crucify him. 
So first, just notice the flippancy of the accolade of humanity. And notice the power of God's accolade for us. What Jesus says about us. Psalm 27, right? This, the Lord will bear me up. His steadfast love endures forever. But look also at what they were asking for and what God gives. We always think we know what we need. We always think that we know when we go to God, we know what we want. But, but notice, we know that God doesn't give that, but instead in the long run, he exceeds their expectations. It never feels like that in the moment. In Tim Keller's book on prayer, he says it this way, God will either give you what you ask for, or God always gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knows. Notice what the humble king brings. They just wanted to be delivered from Roman occupation. They thought they knew what would save them. Hey God, come fix this. Hosanna, save us. And notice what Jesus loves them too much to do. He's the coming king who comes to reign, not because he gives them what they want or what they think they need, but because he comes as the humble king to serve, to offer up in himself what these people could not have rightly gotten. Last thing, notice the, the young colt, the wild, untamed colt. One commentarian points something powerful. Jesus didn't break the animal, but under his kingly and humble hand, all things come into harmony and peace. I mean, after all, who would ride, who would ride an unbroken colt? Who would do that? And here's the, here's the paradox. Everything he touches, he brings harmony and peace into. But see the paradox. The only person who would ride a donkey into battle is someone evidently who has a different goal. You and I know that if you were to ride a donkey into battle, you're going to get slaughtered. Anyone who rides a donkey into battle rather than a war, you'd be better off on foot. You're going you're to ride a little donkey like a, like, a, like, it's like a comic strip, like a cartoon. Anyone who rides a donkey into battle is going to be slaughtered. Yeah. Go on. And now you see the humble servant who has come to give what you and I could not give, to give and accomplish for us what we could not earn on our own. Not to give power to oppress, but to show humility. Not shy and afraid, but powerful and humble. He comes as a king that takes over. He rearranges the furniture. He comes humble and gentle on a donkey to heal the helpless. He comes and he is coming to replace commerce with true worship and communion to replace transaction with the very presence of God. He sets the table and provides himself as the sacrifice. Let's pray together and thank Jesus for that. Lord, thank you so much that you are good and kind to us. Thank you that you come not as an oppressor and tyrant to overthrow and replace another tyrant. You come as a humble king. You confound and turn the power of this world on its head and demonstrate in humility and weakness what only you could. God, for some in this room, maybe, maybe that's just a paradox and a mystery that seems too, too far-fetched to be true. Might today, even this morning, you grant us eyes to see, to consider this majestic mystery and paradox, 
that the God of the universe comes to save by giving himself. Thank you, Jesus, for being the sacrifice we could not provide, for being the purification and righteousness we could not earn. Through weakness, welcoming those of us who are weak. Might we receive that invitation by faith today. In Jesus' name, amen.